calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Entering the realm of the round table. It's episode 440 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Got something really, really special this week. Of course, we're part of the Realm Network, so I thought it'd be fun to get a whole bunch of creators together from the Realm Network. And we're going to do a bunch of these. This is the first ever Realm Roundtable. It's going to be the Noir Roundtable with the creative minds behind Hot House Bruiser, City of Ghosts, also the Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. So many great shows to talk about. Whether you're already subscribed or you're not sure about these shows, we're going to dive into how you make a noir show, what makes a show noir, what's so great about these shows, and a lot of great just back and forth between everyone. Really excited to bring this to you this week. Also going to be talking to J.C. Cervantes, who's the author of The Lords of Night, her brand new book. And yeah, it is a spinoff, and I'll get into that here in just a couple of minutes. Also going to give reviews of both the She-Hulk finale and Rosalind from Hulu. But let's start out by going around the realm table. Going to talk about noir with some amazing podcast creators next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Addy Shankar and I'm on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. One of the reasons I love being part of the Realm Network is just being a part of so many great shows with so many amazing creators. So we just got, got together with Realm. I said, let's talk about some of these shows. Let's bring everybody together. So this is the Realm Noir round table bringing so many amazing shows together we've got a few shows we're going to talk about this week starting with city of ghosts we've got creators ryan patch and karina green hello hello hey there 
We've also got the creator of Hot House Bruiser. It's Joel Metzger. Joel, how are you? Hey, how's it going? And then we also have <laughs> Realm Story Executive. He was also one of the producers of the Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. Marco, hello to you as well. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. All righty. And now we were just talking about this. Joel and I were off the air. He was talking about the Orson Welles days. And I, to me, noir is like the birthplace of scripted audio series and old radio shows, things like that. I mean, The Shadow, Dick Tracy, you can go back to any, you can choose any number of them. Talk a little bit about, and I think we'll start with, we'll start with Ryan and Karina. Talk a little bit about your inspiration for creating these shows and working in this genre. Yeah, I think the show really, for me, came from a sense of place, a sense of New York City. It's very endemic to the show, and that was uh, really important to me. And the noir tone, I think, came out of that. And so we didn't so much set out to make a noir show as much as we set out to make a show about a, a young troubled person in New York City. And it kind of turned very noir. But Karina, you know, Karina is 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 different. You know, we, we approach this from very different angles, which is why I think the show turned out the way it did. Yeah, though, I agree. I think it did really come from a sense of place. We kind of already had the concept of, oh, it would be interesting if someone is investigating a murder and they can see people who have died, you know, how would that influence a murder investigation? And so I kind of brought that idea. And then Ryan brought the New York setting, I think, as we started to marry the two kind of together, more noir elements really kind of came out into the show as we were writing it. But I don't think we, like Ryan said, sat down and, and kind of said, yeah, let's make a noir show. It just kind of happened that way out of the concept and the setting. Joel, what would you say? Yeah, it, kind of similar. I didn't really set out to make noir. You know, one of the things that kind of inspired me actually was as I was kind of figuring out how does one do a audio drama, the films of the Coen brothers, you know, some of their films have just a really unique language that's sort of like a set dressing for them, you know? And so I just love film more. And I just started adapting more and more of that language because since you don't have visuals and set dressing, the way people talk is, is, has a lot to do with the experience. So yeah, it kind of fell into the noir thing. Marco, I don't know that we could say that about Knock, about the Shadow Files of Morgan Knox, because there's noir vibes all over that yeah. show. So talk about that a little bit. Well, I, I mean, in my case, I'm, I'm the opposite of the rest of our, our group. I have been wanting to do a weird supernatural period noir story for ages before we put Knox together. And, uh, you know, if I, Knox was a way to fulfill a long simmering desire on my part. And yeah, I mean, I love the sensibilities and the aesthetics and the whole vibe of the, of the thirties and the forties. And, you know, it's great window dressing. And, you know, we tried to use it to full effect, but, but, you know, it, it, that's what noir looks like, right? I mean, and it's how, it, and it's, it's how it sounds. It's not really what noir is. It, it is, it is definitely all of those things, but at its core, it's really about, you know, the issues that the stories are dealing with, but we can get into that later, I guess. <laughs> it's funny that you say the word vibe, because that kind of leads me into my next question, because, you know, people hear the word noir, they think, you know, okay, black and white, trench coats, narrations, things like that. But the, in all these shows, there's a little bit of that in there, but not a ton. And I think that noir can be interpreted in many different ways. So do you feel like noir is more of a vibe than a genre? I feel like noir is almost like a syndrome. It's a, it's, <laughs> It's a, it's a list of symptoms, you know, if German expressionist lighting, you know, a feeling of fate, a feeling of doom, usually an investigative character. There's a, there's a, there's a laundry list. And if you get six out of 10, you probably have more, you know, <laughs> says the guy with the show about the virus, by the way. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, if you're doing the audio drama, you can't see the expressionistic lighting. You can't mm -hmm. see the the wet streets at night. You have to lean on the audio. So that's why the dialogue comes in so strong with that. Anybody else want to jump in on that? I could share a quote by Guillermo del Toro, who was asked in an interview, you know, what he how he defined noir. And in part, it reads, noir is the poetry of disillusionment and, and existentialism, the tragedy that emerges between the haves and the have nots. And the have nots are trying to breach their ambition through violence and ultimately worshiping a hollow God, which is money. It's literally the exploration of the flip side of the American dream. And I thought that was so well put. I mangled the quote, but you, you get the idea. I mean, it's, it's, it's really at its core about downtrodden characters trying to, you know, navigate a very harsh society. Did he, was he speaking about that in, in reference to uh, Nightmare Alley or one of his other I don't, films? I don't have the full context for the okay. uh, quote, but, but given the timing of when it was published, I think it may have been in connection with Nightmare Alley. I can't swear to that. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Cause I think I remember partially the, the quotes you were saying, I was like, that sounds familiar. And that makes sense that it would be around that time. But you talk about characters and I feel like Ryan and Karina, I think this one's actually perfect for you guys. All of these stories have great characters. That's something that you guys very much have in common in all of these shows. But do you feel like the setting and the time period you choose is just as important as the characters themselves? I definitely think so. I think with City of Ghosts, yeah, really the city is a character into itself. I feel that way about all writing, that your setting is a character, that you should treat your setting like a character because your setting will inform your characters, will inform how they interact with the world. And sometimes there can be conflict with the setting, things like that. So I always feel setting is an additional character. And I definitely feel like that's true for City of Ghosts. We really wanted to lean into how it feels in New York and kind of also how New York is embodies a lot of the the traits of noir that for example in Guillermo del Toro's quote you know it's very highlighted there the money wealth struggle is all kind of built on top of each other in this very closed environment in the city and we really wanted to explore that so it was very intentional with where we set it and I definitely think it lent itself to the show and Ryan can also jump in because New York was definitely you know his suggestion for setting too no, I think I think you you got it all. But yeah, I, I question if it's if it specifically has to do with noir because obviously you can make a noir in any setting. I mean, I love Joel's quote: "It's a syndrome <laughs> or a sickness, not a necessarily a genre." Because a, a good filmmaker could give you that syndrome in any setting with any sort of characters. And and I think some of the greatest neo noirs that we've seen, what makes them so interesting is that they're not full of trench coast and expressionist lighting and in black and white in in New York City. And so you can see. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, something that comes to mind is is Ryan Johnson's brick. You know, it's like literally a, in a high school in Orange County. And it's like, who would think that's a noir setting? But he made it and and there are still interesting characters and the, the setting plays a role. Absolutely. But but that's not what makes it noir. And Joel, for you, I, th I feel like setting is hugely important in your story. Yeah, I, I created a world with this thing. One of the things that was really important to me was, you know, it's, it's a quarantine. It's a locked off place. Downtown is sort of a city within a city. And I just never wanted to do anything like escape from New York, escape from L.A. Like I didn't want people walking around in rags. I thought, well, if we wall people in in a, you know, in downtown L.A., so much more interesting if it becomes more like a hyper capitalist, successful, stylishly dressed place that 
can totally like like the living status on the inside is actually better than the outside except they just can't leave the walls you know and so it even becomes kind of hip they sort of set the, the trend for for clothes and things but they just can't get out and i just thought that was way more interesting to have a have an economy within an economy that can't escape yeah. so wh why oh, why sorry, it became so radically noir i don't know i guess that's the way i that's what i like listening you'll to. take it <laughs> like that flavor it didn't have to it didn't start is that the original concept was just you know future but um all of a sudden everybody's you know talking with that noir gab you know it really works what i thought was so interesting about joel about um hothouse was as I was preparing for this roundtable and, and looking at it in, in a corollary to ours is that obviously we make, it's like horror films, you know, the noir, it's about what do we fear as a society? What, what gives us anxiety? What, what do we dread? And, you know, in the, in the forties and fifties, it was, you know, the, the moral decay. It was, you know, loose women with their own, you know, their own objectives, you know, it was, it was spies. It was, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, but something that's interesting about ours, even though, you know, yours is set in the future, ours is set in 19, City of Ghosts set in 1990, we're both afraid of corporations and lawyers and uh, surveillance. And yeah. And, 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 and people earning money off the backs of ordinary people. And I think that speaks hopefully, and I'm trying, I'm not trying to flatter myself, but that's where all storytelling, but specifically noir can help us kind of grapple with these things that us as a culture we're, we're anxious about. Yeah. Marco, since you kind of talked about that a little bit earlier, I'll, I'll put it on a different spin for you for the Shadow Files, Morgan Knox. My, one of the things that drew me to the show initially was my love for John Constantine and Hellblazer stories and things like that. I felt like there was a yeah. similar correlation there. So do you kind of feel like the fact that she's a Latina woman in the 1930s yeah. in Manhattan going to try and work in a quote-unquote man's world kind of just jumps up the level of intrigue of the story. Yeah, I hope it does. I mean, you know, we like the idea of flipping the traditional hero, you know, testosterone-fueled white male and telling this tale from the point of view of an Afro-Latina, as you said. But she's she's not hard-boiled, but she's definitely got a tough-as-nails quality that that you expect from a character of, of this genre. But it's from a different perspective. You know, she's she's still dealing with, you know, the realities of being a woman of color in the 1930s and how people relate to her and and you know the kind of assumptions that they make and the the racism she encounters are very woven into both her character arc and the story itself. She's also queer, which, you know, adds another dimension to it. In the 1930s, yes, it yep. certainly does. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, no doubt. I, I want to talk about, go back to City of Ghosts here for a second, Ryan and Karina, because I think Elle's one of my favorite characters on the entire Realm Network. I just love her for some reason. There's just something about her, the way she carries herself. I don't know what it is. But what do you guys think sets her apart really from your typical investigator? We purposely tried not to, you know, she's an investigator, but we tried to make it a loose kind of, that she's an investigator you know she's not your traditional she doesn't run an agency she doesn't have anything like that that's more established and we kind of wanted to do that i think to give her sort of more freedom to you know kind of do things without being kind of established under an agency and, and we wanted to do it that investigating a murder is very much outside her realm of what she normally does so it's kind of pushing her into new territory and how that kind of challenges her and 
helps her grow and change as a character and a person throughout the story. And so we kind of wanted to do it where she's she's kind of, you know, gritty and hard-boiled a little bit. You know, she's look, used to looking out for herself. She has that kind of tough element, but the kind of investigative, intense kind of investigative and grappling with these huge power structures is not normally what she's used to doing and so she's new to all of that and I think that brings out sort of emotions and vulnerability in her uh, as she kind of descends deeper into this investigation that was you know helpful for us to it was a vehicle for us to explore her character better. I, I really yeah. liked Elle too. I, I just wanted to offer you this comment and it's a compliment. I got a real Jessica Jones vibe offer. Yes. So. Yes, that's right. That, that was somewhat intentional. Right. <laughs> there was definitely Jessica Jones inspiration there, I will say. It's interesting to me, Joel, because I feel like Bruiser is the most appropriate name ever for a sort <laughs> character name and matching to a story. But at the same time, he's a bull, but he's a teddy bear. Too at the same time, because he, you know, he wants to play hoops with his daughter. He wants to get back to his family. So, how did you balance that just kind of gruffness with also that, you know, that dad vibe as well? Yeah, well, you got to give him something, right? I mean, yeah, you know, a lot of times film noir heroes they they can be pretty dark and pretty grimy, but they have some kind of internal code, just one thing, you know, that that you can kind of put your hat on of like, well, they still have a heart, you know. I mean, I'm kind of thinking of Michael Chiklis in The Shield, you know, like he was just a despicable Nazi, but man, anything about kids, like forget it. Like he will jump in front of a car to save a kid. He had that one redeeming thing, you know? I wasn't thinking of him when I, when I wrote the character, but one of the things I wanted to explore was if you're, if you're cut off from your family, just like, it's kind of like everybody in downtown LA had to suddenly go, got locked up in, in a jail of, of, of a type. And, you know, all the characters, if they had anyone on the outside, it's like, whack, you're just, you're just cut off. So, yeah, I wanted to give him that that sort of noir descent of his own morality as he gets in deeper and deeper and goes becomes more and more like the jungle around him. And so I just applied his heart is on the outside with his kid. It's all about his kid. That's the thing that's just keeping him a human being, which he actually says a couple of times during the course of the show, too, which I really, really love. I want to open this up again to the room because I, I love a good twist. I think that everybody in this room loves a good twist. You could argue that all of these stories has more than one twist in them, I would say. So first, let's talk about what goes into leading into a good twist, but also your opinions on the anticipation of a twist that, you, that your audience gives. Does that kind of add to the pressure of making sure you pay that off? And I think we'll start with Marco on that. Wow. I was trying to remember what the twist is in <laughs> my own story. <laughs> I, I would have got, I, there, there was some twist with Sivarak yeah. and things like that too. And then of course, right. a little bit past the halfway point, I think there's another, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I right, think there's right, at right, least a couple. Right. I mean, obviously you need to foreshadow it in some way, whether, I mean, and hopefully not overtly, but just enough so that when the twist comes, your audience doesn't think it came out of nowhere but it was actually seeded early in the story, you know, and the story has now circled back to this seemingly perhaps innocuous detail that, you know, changes your understanding of what's actually going on. Well, hopefully for the better. <laughs> Joel, I feel like you wasted no time in getting to your first twist. And that, I feel like that paid off pretty well. And what, like the first episode, the second episode or something like that, you did your first twist right away. Okay. So I'll try to do this without spoiling it. Uh, the clone twist. Well, yeah, I guess that's, yeah, I guess that's a uh, that, that's a twist. It's a reveal. I think the the twistiest thing I had was uh, the character of Vera Grail, because she, oh yeah, she, she just every episode she's revealed as 
something newer and deadlier. She starts out, she's, she's just running a bar and just an entrepreneur, kind of like Rick from Casablanca, just doing that life. And then it turns out she's plugged into the underground. She's got all kinds of connections. And then it turns out, well, you know, anyway, it turns out she works for very powerful corporations, how we say, like this, this thing that we had sort of hinted at as existing is almost a myth, this level of something. And she's one of those. Then she pops in with a completely different role. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, you know, I was lucky enough, I got Tracy Lords to play her. And I think it was because I just had her twist, twisting and twisting the night away, you know, with, with her playing different roles. Definitely worked out. Now, Ryan and Karina, would you say that in your story, is it more of a twist? Is it a reveal? What do you think? Yeah, I think that neither of us kind of came, I think this is both of our first real mystery. And so that we wrote, and so we're, we were figuring out how to kind of write a, satisfying twisty mystery in real time and i think you know we're, we're certainly no like jillian flynn or anything like that but you know we're, we're all aspire but so it's it's more like just a, a one-way train ride of like small reveals that eventually end in in darkness or something like that i know that's a real a real good <laughs> advertisement for city of ghosts but like a one-way train ride into the darkness but we focus much more on our characters their mm-hmm. relationships and kind of these these reveals more so than than the twists but we did get some good ones i don't know karina do you have anything to add yeah and i think i would say that for reveals too we just kind of kept getting more and more personal like the case kept getting more and more like closer and closer to l so each reveal we kind of wanted to push it further to where it's not just something she's investigating anymore now it has to do with like her sister's family now it has to do so it it moved from kind of this removed investigation to this very personal thing that's involved outside of her relationship with the ghost but also her relationship with her family and and things like that so we kind of tried to make that intentional of each reveal is drawing her further and further in kind of as ryan said down this sort of kind of dark train or abyss i wouldn't say we had many like big shocking twists but you know that wasn't really our intention we again wanted to focus on the characters and like how does each reveal affect l and make this a thing that's more and more not something she can walk away from and what will it do to her life and her personal relationships at the end of it all you know james I, there wasn't really a chance to jump in earlier but you know you asked about about l and in addition to you know the writing which you know karina is is very much responsible for the characters but you know we can't say enough good things about our cast and bridget lundy Payne, who played mm-hmm. l and, and the life that they brought to the character and and then all the other characters around them that allow them to play off of of those characters and 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 come alive you know we thought really hard about how can even though Elle is a character who's who's like a quote unquote loner. She's actually not a loner because she's always on the phone with someone. Right, right <laughs> exactly. So she like projects loner vibes, but uh, uh, you know we don't have narration like the other shows on our in this panel. But but and so always giving other characters for her to reveal herself was, was something that we really focused on. So how can we always have someone from for her to talk to, whether it's your sister, you know, the computer hacker Prizrak or Sahar the ghost? So before we wrap this up, I thought it would be fun. To kind of do a kind of a fish out of water type of thing with with each of you. So again, we'll stick with Ryan and Karina for this one. You know that Elle's a good investigator. She has the paranormal similar, not similar paranormal abilities, but at least something similar to what Morgan Knox has. So it got me wondering. You know, how do you think Elle would fare in 1930s Manhattan? I don't think 1930s Manhattan is ready for Elle. <laughs> <laughs> I think she would. I think she would fare poorly. 
Yeah, I think so. I think the lack of technology, she would struggle with that for sure as a major one. And when you were talking, when there, when there was a scene in, in your show where you were talking about tape and all this pile of tape and all I can see in my brain is this pile of spools of, of cassette tape and I'm like, oh, that's a nightmare, but not even having that option. Yeah, I could see that being driving her nuts. She's very dependent on her phone, so not having a not having a phone would be... in the '90s. She's dependent on her phone yeah. too. So right. let's just think about that for a second. <laughs> okay, Joel, you're up. So I want to do something a bit different with Bruiser because he would probably bully his way through pretty much any time period or setting that you put him in anyway. But how do you think Bruiser would react if he could see ghosts or even talk to him? Oh, that's interesting. Well, you know, I don't have anything supernatural per se in the story, but he does confront some technology that's really weird. I, I got kind of a, for lack of a better word, monster that sort of holds reign over the, he keeps the city in fear. Turns out, turns out there's a tech, you know, there's a technical technology reason for it. But it's fairly supernatural. And, you know, and he shoots it down as something not supernatural. He doesn't believe in it. So, yeah, I think he would be a he would be a, a doubting Thomas on anything ghosts, anything alien, anything supernatural. He just that's not how his brain works. He's really logical. So and then he would eventually reveal it for whatever uh, trickery it is. You know, that's right. I was looking for the answers that bruiser. OK, Marco, here we go. We know that we've got Hothouse Bruiser that traps some of its characters behind a wall in downtown Los Angeles. So how do you feel like Morgan Knox would fare inside the futuristic setting that is the Hothouse? I think she'd be depressed as all hell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we're talking about a character who served as a battlefield nurse in World War One, and then, you know, tried to make it as a, a PI in, in New York City. In, in the 30s and to be transported to a future like that i don't know i i i'm not too clear what year hot house hot house bruiser is is set in joel can you tell me uh, it changes <laughs> i wrote this thing so long ago let's say let's so say it's a, ago, let's and, say and it's 100 years yeah, yeah let's say it's, let's say it's 100 years i mean from morgan to to you know be transported 100 years in the future and see how little has changed would probably depress the hell out of her. <laughs> Boy, is that a good point right there. Okay, really quickly, we're going to go around the room because, you know, if, if I see the loyal listeners on your social media feeds. They're all, they're asking you. They want to know. So I'm going to put you all on the spot here really quickly, and we'll start with Joel. Season two, yes or no? Yeah, I was just talking to my main actor, Paul, about that. All right, I'm going to confess something right now. I was going to do nine. I was going to do ten episodes of season one, and I couldn't think of a tenth. So I only did nine. I noodle ideas about season two. Boy, it's a lot of work to put these things out. So I don't know. I've only been on Realm for what two months. So we'll just see if it gets enough traction and people like it. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely think about it. Ryan and Karina, City of Ghosts, season two. Yay or nay? Well, we have a story. We do not have financing right now. I, I think a lot of people, we, we get a lot of compliments. They say, oh, it sounds so good. It, it you know, sounds so professional. It's like, yeah, we put a lot and that costs a lot of money. So the financing is not there right now for a season two. We have a, we have a story that we'd love to tell though. So Maybe you got it. So you can either, you know, arrange a massive deposit into my uh, <laughs> checking account, or you can buy me a couple beers, and then I can just tell it to you one night. Both, <laughs> both are good ways to get the season two. <laughs> that sounds like a great plan. Okay, Marco, I know that that the, the Shadow Files of Morgan Knox been around for a while now, but is there any chatter about a season two? 
Well, I have two answers for you. One is I would love to do a season two. I would do it, do it in a minute. Two is that it's funny because when we did this production, we were still Cereal Box. We weren't a podcast company yet. And, you know, we did things a certain way back then. And I know if we if we were to start Knox today, we would do it. In a, we would execute it in a completely different way. You know, unlike unlike the other shows here, which are full cast audio dramas, Knox is more of an audiobook with a narrator reading, you know, in the third person. It's not really the way we do shows anymore at Realm, which is not to say I'm, I'm, I don't love Knox. I'd love it to death, but I would totally do it differently now if I if if we were allowed to, to go forward with either doing it over or or doing a season two it would it would be docs but it would be it would be a little a bit different well one of the ways you can support these amazing shows whether you've whether you've already been listening or if you're a new listener you think oh, I gotta check that out find them wherever you get your podcast at city of ghosts Hot House Bruiser. Make sure you know Hot House is one word by the way not two so which you when you're searching for that also the shadow files of Morgan Knox. You can get those wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you download the Realm app, you can listen on there as well. And yeah, the, one of the best ways you can support these shows, you want a season two, listen to them. Tell your friends about them. Listen to them again. That gets those dollars flowing and that gets the whole, oh yeah, yeah, we can do a season two thing right up there. But again, thank you to everybody for joining me for the Realm Noir Roundtable. Marco Palmieri, Ryan Patch, Karina Green, and Joel Metzger. Everyone, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. It's been awesome. And talking to these amazing creative minds is one of the reasons that I love noir so much because it can come from so many different places in so many different forms and just be such an amazing vehicle for storytelling. And it's like a couple of instances here, you hear that it almost happens by accident sometimes, but once you find it, you're like, well, now I can't not do this. And that is just one of the many reasons to love shows like Hot House Bruiser, like City of Ghosts, and The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox, and many more noir podcasts that you can find on the Realm Network. Make sure you're downloading the Realm app to explore them all because there is no shortage of choices, believe me. Again, thanks to the amazing creators to, to join for joining me around the Realm Network Noir Roundtable. Up next... Got another interview for for you. J.C. Cervantes joins me to talk about Lords of Night. I'll do we'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is writer Alex Irvine, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're a fan of the Stormrunner series or not, boy, is there a really cool book to tell you about. The Lords of the Night from Rick Riordan Presents and the author of not just the first, the original trilogy, but the spinoff is, is here with me right now, J.C. Cervantes. J.C., how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. 
So, like I said, before we dive into this story, this is a spinoff of the Stormrunner trilogy. So, well, fans kind of need to be familiar with that original trilogy. Is this one you can kind of dive right into? I think you can dive right into this one. I mean, I think it certainly helps if you are familiar with the world of the Stormrunner, just because there are definitely, you know, pointers to that. Mm -hmm. But I tried to contextualize it in such a way that if readers want to begin with this book, then they can. So what made you actually decide to do a spinoff and what made Ren the choice for the lead in the spinoff? You know, it was a really organic process. So Ren came onto the page in The Firekeeper and she was such an interesting character and she was so mature for her years. You know, she had the Zen-like quality, practiced meditation, really looked at the world through these kind of eyes of innocence and vulnerability and really believed the best in everyone, uh, definitely an ambassador of goodwill. So by the time that the shadow crosser ends, which is the third book in the storm Runner trilogy, I was so curious about her and I knew she had her own story to tell. And I really wanted to know that origin story because she's a very powerful God born, but I knew there was more to it than that. So it was really an organic process. I mean, I just really needed to know more about her. I didn't intend, oh, let me write a spinoff. Who should that be about? It really was. I just needed to know more about this character. And it's interesting, too, because when you go from secondary character to main character, you start to unpack more about, like you said, their backstory and things like that. So as you started to, I mean, because as you're writing her, you're learning more about her as well. So what was your favorite thing about her as you were going in this particular book? What I loved the most, that's a great question, is that this is someone that I've just described to you as being vulnerable and having an innocent quality about her no matter what she confronts. But in this particular book, she is having to go up against the rogue god horns that we end in the Shadow Crosser. And they're contextualized here. So these are just basically a group of her peers that have kind of gone to the dark side mm -hmm. and to keep the Aztec Lords of Night from awakening. Well, what was interesting to me is that as Ren continues to fail and fail and fail and, and these Lords are awakening at different times and she's not getting there fast enough, her world begins to crumble around her. And as new truths set in, we see her facing a dark side and her shadow side. And what does that mean for her character? So that was the most interesting element for me is that she does this really sharp departure from the character that we had seen in the Stormrunner trilogy. So JC, I think it's interesting because I feel like so many young readers and young people in general don't know a lot about Mayan and Aztec culture. I mean, you get taught history in school, but not necessarily the culture of that here, here in the States anyway. So how cool is it for you that these novels could kind of be a gateway to kind of spark the interest of a young reader in that culture? Oh, I think that that would be really incredible. You know, the Mesoamerican societies were such interesting civilizations and the, the history is so rich mm -hmm. and traumatic. And I don't think that people realize that level of colonization that happened with the Spanish conquerors and, and what that did to those civilizations and, and therefore people's own ancestors and, and what that meant for the future. So I think it's a really riveting part of world history, even as traumatic as it is. And I certainly hope that kids would be able to delve into that and be interested in it. And there's so much rich, richness in that as well. So yeah, anybody that's thinking about it, yeah, dive into it because it's really, really neat. So Ren is connected to more more shadow magic, which, which we get to see a little bit more in this book as well. But I kind of feel like that, you know, of course, it's called the Shadow Brujas. So that, that you know, leads right into that as well. So how fun is it to kind of create with shadow magic in this book? Because I kind of feel like there's a lot that you can do there and probably still more that you want to do. 
Yeah. So, you know, Ren's lineage is a mystery and it's really fascinating. So we learned that in the Stormrunner series, and if you pick up Lords of Night and you start with that, you'll learn that she comes into shadow magic in a way that her family didn't want her to tap into that magic and that her father, her deceased father had tried to prevent her from, but she has that in her blood. And so that is something that she has to examine and learn to control But then as the story progresses, and I will not give any spoilers, there is another part of her lineage that connects her to the gods. And so it makes her the most powerful god born of them all because she's not just a hybrid, right? She has Mm -hmm. this connection to magic from two different powerful cultures. And what does that mean for her? And what is she going to do with that power? So you kind of get into the origin story of her power a little bit in the very beginning of the Lords of Night. But fans might say, okay, well, is that it? That can't be it, right? Like you said, there's there's more to it that's coming, right? Because you oh. kind of think you know, and then you don't know sort of thing. So much more. And here's what's really fascinating. I just finished the second book. I finished writing it. I turned it in for this book that'll come out a year from now. And what transpires with those powers blew me away. I wasn't expecting it. And I love being surprised as the author. And I wrote it and went, what? That's where that comes from? So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. That's really, really cool. We, we talked about the Stormrunner j- trilogy a little bit. There's going to be plenty of familiar names in the Lords of Night as well that longtime fans are going to know when they see it on the page. So who's your favorite character to pair Ren up with? Because for me, it was Marco initially, and then I kind of started flip-flopping. How, what do you think? Well, I have a soft spot for Apouche, so she calls AP the god of death, darkness, and destruction. I mean, I love Edison the Teen Demon, and I love our Aztec warrior in Monty, but you know, she's been with AP since the beginning, and this is a god who has been very villainized and is the god of death, darkness, and destruction, and yet on the flip side of that, he has a soft spot for Ren, and it's a delicate balance to balance that with his evil, but it, it's been fun to play with too, because on one hand, no one is really entirely evil and no one is entirely good. And so, so he was kind of like this shadow character that I thought was a lot of fun to pair her with and, and kind of be a foil. It's interesting because even in young adult stories like this one, when you see gods, a lot of times, it seems like lately, they're either very untrustworthy or they're kind of jerks. So how did you want to approach the gods in your story? Because I do feel like you do it a little bit differently. Yeah, you know, I mean, everything for me happened organically. And I think they definitely all have their own agenda. They don't think like humans. And so I had to keep remembering that, you know, they don't have the human emotions, at least in, in my novels, they don't have those human emotions. And so they wouldn't apply human logic to problems. So that was actually a lot of fun to play with is because think about it. If we, t- if we remove ourselves from our emotional lives, then what happens, you know, then what are the decisions that we make? And so I think oftentimes we apply so many human characteristics to gods and that's just not for me, that doesn't feel as natural or organic to the story. And so they all have very different approaches, different personalities. And guess what? Their goals and motivations are constantly changing, mm-hmm. constantly changing. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. They are gods after all. So that's, right. that's very, very true. Right. I think it's funny that Ren has her own alien blog. We get to, get to unpack a little bit more of that <laughs> in this story. She's very committed to her belief, though, that aliens are somehow tied into this civiliz- into this world and the civilization that she's, that she's part of. So how much of that will we kind of see as part of the story in The Lords of Night? 
So you will, she dips her toe in the water and continues that exploration. And then in the next book, which I think we've titled, but I'm not allowed to share yet. In the next book, that will come full circle because I wanted to close that loop. And so the readers will get their answers about extraterrestrials. Ooh, that's a good tease for book two. And it should also make you want to read book one too, by the way. <laughs> now, the, JC, these stories have dealt with plenty of demons in the past in the, in the original trilogy. And you mentioned the one that's part of this book as well. How much can you tell readers about the antagonist or antagonists in this story? Yeah. So, you know, I always try to make them different. I, even in the Stormrunner trilogy, every book was a different plot. You know, I didn't want it to be the same plot for a three books continuation. And, you know, it's, it's, they're not hard for me to come by. I mean, my favorite characters to write are always the antagonists. It's always the villains. And yet what's their origin story? What made them that way? So when we talk about the godborns who've gone rogue and want to overthrow the Maya gods and they're angry and they're bitter and they want to awaken these nine lords for a very specific purpose. And Ren is looking at these people like, I thought we were friends. Like, mm -hmm. why are you doing this? So she's really grappling with that. They were a lot of fun to write, very different. And then, you know, looking at as the lords of night woke up, I will be honest with you, so there are very short vignettes when they each wake up. Mm -hmm. And those were my favorite pieces to write because they wake up in different ways. And I just, I really loved writing those pieces because they felt so atmospheric to me. And I loved that. Okay. So the reader in me has to ask this question because I found this really, really neat. You actually have one page chapters in this book. And that is something you almost never see. And it's usually, and it, one of them comes right away, right after Ren's awakening, like you were saying. So talk about this decision to go into that because it's, it's almost like, okay, so here's how I'm going to bridge the gap of time. We're going to set the tone here and now we're moving on. So talk about the decision to do that, not just once, but a couple of times in the book, actually. I really wanted to set apart. So, so in other words, I switched the point of view a little bit, right? And became an omniscient narrator for those chapters. And so I'm always, the reader will always be in Ren's head. And then all of a sudden we're going to switch and we're going to get this omniscient view of these lords waking up in violent terms most often. And they're angry because they've been asleep a long time mm -hmm. and what that means. And it felt like it needed to be set apart. So I did make a very conscious choice. I didn't want to make it part of the chapter. And then I knew Ren wouldn't be there for the awakening, right? So how would she know? And I wanted it to be really short and succinct. I mean, I wanted it to feel almost dreamlike and it was just, you know, this blink. And then we, you know, let's move on with the story. But the reader will always be thinking, well, what happened to that guy who just woke up? What's he doing right now? And we know they're wreaking havoc, but we're not quite sure why or what and what's going to happen when they all wake up right? Because that's when the power mm -hmm. really culminates. What's going to happen when all these lords wake up? And so we get, here's Lord number one, here's Lord number two. And as we're progressing through the story, it's like, oh God, we're only a couple lords away. <laughs> so part of it was a, a pacing and tension um, decision as well. Well, it certainly worked. That's for sure. So before I ask you about the next book in the series, I've seen some of this on social media and I, I, and I was like, you know, I'm going to ask. I know that, you know, Ren's last name is Santiago. It's it's a common last name. It's it's fairly common. At the same time, Rick Riordan fans are like, hold on a second. We've got Paula Santiago, Taylor <laughs> K. Mejia's series. Hold on. Is there a connection there? Could we see a crossover, all this stuff? So, so I mean, I, I got to ask, is, is it a coincidence? Is it just purely a coincidence? Or is this something that we maybe need to keep a little bit more of an eye on? 
So I think it's a coincidence. I mean, I wrote Renata Santiago before Paula Santiago was published. So because she, she came onto the page in the Firekeeper. So let's blame Taylor and say that Taylor snagged the name <laughs> tell you the Firekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, really cool. But, you know, fans aren't going to let it go. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying. You can say that all you want. They're not going to let it go for sure. Okay, so I know you can't tell us the title of the next book, but, you know, and I don't want to obviously spoil anything about the Lords of Night, but so what can we expect as we transition from the Lords of Night into this next book? Are we going to be looking at a cliffhanger at the end of this thing? Is it going to be more of like a natural progression like it was from the trilogy into the spinoff? What would you say? This is definitely a cliffhanger. It is the, my, of all the books I've written, it is my favorite ending. And when I read the end of this book, I tear up and I get chills still. And I'm the one who wrote the words. It is very painful. It's it's a pretty traumatic ending. And again, we're going to move into someone else's point of view. And I won't say who, but that particular character, I have a soft spot for. So I think that's why it's so painful is, is to see that transition in the character. And so the the next book, I don't know. I don't know. I mean... I, I think people are going to have to guess, you know, at the end of this one, the the way that it ends, how could it possibly go forward? How could it possibly, how could anything else possibly go forward? But oh, it does. See, see now everybody's and will, worried. And I will say this, in the next book, there are so many surprises. There were so many surprises even for me, but I, I really was able to tie in a lot of questions that even began with the, the Stormrunner trilogy. So that was a lot of fun. See, now everybody's going to be worried about their favorite character and they're going to be rushing to get the Lords <laughs> of Night to, to make sure that they're okay. And they, they can get the book right now. Wherever books are, <laughs> you can get that wherever books are sold from Rick Riordan Presents and just be prepared. She said in about a year from now, you're going to get the second book in the duology as well. JC Cervantes, thank you so much thank for joining you. me today. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. So if you're a fan of the original trilogy or not, the Lords of Night is definitely one of those books that's going to grab your attention, Shadow Magic, like I was saying, super, super interesting. And just the twists and turns that come from this book and, and so many amazing characters to choose from and just the, the Aztec Mayan culture alone that you get from this is worth the price of admission. There's so many things to enjoy about the Lords of Night. So make sure you're grabbing your copy available right now wherever books are sold. Again, thanks to J.C. Cervantes for joining me this week to talk about the Lords of Night. Up next, I've got my review of the She-Hulk season finale. Oh, we'll maybe drop a few spoilers on that. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Peter David, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. There's Breaking the Fourth Wall, and then there is the She-Hulk season finale or is it a series finale we don't know yet just aired on disney plus i'm not going to give away all the spoilers you've seen if you've seen them on social media fine but i'm not going to be the guy that spoils it for you just in case you haven't seen it so i'm not going to reveal the major spoiler at the end that involved bruce banner by the way that's all i'll give you it involves bruce banner that's all i'm telling you you probably already know what it is yeah, is it big? Yeah, I think it's big. Was it kind of expected if you read between the lines? Yeah, I think it was. That's my little spiel on that. But it was it was still a big deal. Here's the deal, though. The She-Hulk finale, I think I've seen a lot on social media where people are saying, oh, it was the greatest, it's now my favorite Marvel show. It was such an amazing finale, best episode of the season, all of these things. And here's the deal. 
it was definitely one of the better episodes of the season. I don't think there's any debate about that at all. And it kind of looked like it was going to go in the wrong direction. And then the biggest fourth wall break so far, Jen Walters kind of, She-Hulk climbs out of her own shell, heads down to Marvel Studios to try to talk to Kevin Feige, which I thought was really funny, and ends up talking to Kevin instead. If you've seen the episode, you know what I'm talking about. Pretty hilarious. But here's the deal. Basically, this was a finale that dared to point out the flaws that Marvel Studios has shown more so recently than anything else and kind of poke fun at itself, which, you know, self-deprecating humor is is great. I love it. I think it's a necessary thing. Even the most successful people can find something to kind of pick at about themselves if they want to, right? And She-Hulk kind of did that with the MCU, even poking fun at itself, saying, you know, how they didn't have Daredevil in the show enough and things like that, and how the, the this finale, you know, the season's kind of gone off the rails of what the story was really about at times. Here's the thing, though. If you were that self-aware of that, then why didn't you go back and fix some of that in, in general and, you know, reshoots and things like that? You think that you could have done that a little bit to fix some of the problems that She-Hulk had. And even if you loved certain episodes of this show, you have to admit that this season of She-Hulk has had its problems and clearly they were aware of said problems. I don't know if this particular part of the finale was a reshoot or not. I haven't dug that deep into it. This is just my two cents on what I saw, just like what you saw. I'm not trying to dig into some insider information here. I want to gut react just like your gut reacting. And my gut reaction was it was funny. It was fun. It was different. And I like that it was at least different. I'll give them that much. I think that the fact that this was different and and more of a self-aware type of thing. I thought that made it fun, and I thought that will probably make it memorable, if nothing else. But if I'm really being objective here, and maybe this isn't fair because you're talking about like overall stories and things like that, but if we're talking about just looking at finales here of Marvel Studios series on Disney+, Plus, I think Moon Knight was better. I think that Loki was better. I think that WandaVision was better. And maybe these, again, aren't fair comparisons because it's also apples and oranges, too, and I'm willing to admit that. And that this was definitely more of a humor-based series and, and you know less connections to the MCU and things like that other than the huge connection to Bruce Banner, which was obvious from the start. But this was more of a lighthearted thing, and this was more of a personal struggle thing for Jen Walters and She-Hulk, and, and her career, and things like that, and her life. Those were things that were the focus of this show, but there, but therein lies the problem. And even the, the finale episode says it, not a focus enough. So this finale, to me, while I thought it was good, I thought it rounded it out nicely as far as the story was concerned after what happened in the last couple of episodes to Jen. I thought they closed that, that hole pretty quickly. And I thought that was smart. I do like that we got more Matt Murdock, and that leaves the door open for questions as to where that whole thing, that whole relationship might be going between Jen and Matt. Of course, he's not in L.A. forever. So what do you do after that? Here's the thing, though. Does this finale make up for a very inconsistent season? I'm not the one that's going to sit here and bash the season either. I think that there's plenty of people on social media and in the media that have unfairly bashed this show, maybe because you you just don't see it for what it is. And it, and it, again, was a different project 
for Marvel, and it was more lighthearted, and it didn't really have major MCU vibes to it. And you've grown to love the MCU. I get that. But you've got to grow and learn and, and try and do different things if you're Marvel after you've been doing this for a while and you don't want to throw out the same old, same old. Because that's one of the things they poke fun at in this episode is that you tend to go a lo- to a lot of the same stuff, a lot of the same tropes that you've created. And you reuse them because they work, but you also, people are starting to notice that, hey, we're doing this a lot. You know, and that's not necessarily a great thing. So is this Marvel Studios trying to tell us, hey, we know, we get it, we do this stuff a lot, we're going to cut it out, we're going to stop it. Is that what's happening? I don't know if that's what's happening or not. We'll have to wait and see. But at the same time, I can't help but wonder if it was to She-Hulk's detriment, this show's detriment. The fact that you had to jump outside of it like that to grab people and take notice just tells me, that there were troubles with this story they knew they couldn't fix in one finale episode, so they decided to go, okay, let's just make this fun and maybe people will forget about everything else. So while I don't think it's fair to judge the entire season based on one episode in a positive way, I don't think it's fair to judge it in a negative way either. She-Hulk had a good lead character. Tatiana Maslany did a, a great job, I thought, in the season. There were some fun side characters. There were some funny moments. Tim Roth did an excellent job as well. But beyond that, I don't know that that She-Hulk really, really comes away looking amazing after this finale. So if you want to think the episode's amazing, fine. But you cannot use this episode and say, oh, amazing season, because it's not made like it made everything that, that was problems about this season make sense in the end. It didn't do that. It fell very much short of that. So up and down season for She-Hulk. The finale was good, not great. Will we see a second season? I don't know. I actually kind of don't think we will. I don't know that we'll get a second season of She-Hulk. I think we'll see her again, maybe in Daredevil board again, maybe in something else. But if audiences respond to the character after that, then maybe you do get a second season. But right now, they even poked fun at how expensive the transformations were. I don't know that just because of the sticker price on this show that we're going to get a second season. But I could be wrong. If the the fan demand is there, you know that Marvel is going to do it. That's going to do it for my review of the maybe series finale of She-Hulk. Up next, let's get another review from Hulu. We'll talk about Rosalind. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Allison Araya from DC's Peacemaker, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy. I feel like I need to say, wherefore art thou... Rosalind, because the forgotten story of the Capulet family is finally coming to Hulu. Rosalind now streaming on Hulu. And I'm going to give, ah, let's do spoiler free on this because it just dropped and I don't want to be that guy either. But here's the deal. If you're not familiar with the story, this is the story of Rosalind and Romeo. Yes, Romeo's girlfriend before Juliet and the love that they shared until they, until they didn't. And then Romeo meets Juliet. And the rest is supposedly history, right? Or is it? Because this is one of those movies that kind of takes a comedic, different look at a classic Shakespearean tale. And that's really kind of what it does. You want to talk about freshening something up and making it completely different from what you know. This is part satire, part romantic comedy, and part just just comedy in general. Because what you have is 
is you have Rosalind, who's kind of she's 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 harsh, she's a little brash, she's definitely doesn't fit the mold of your typical like princess type woman of of that time, and and that is one hundred percent fine. That is one of the things I loved about her is she's her own independent woman and her own independent self. And I dug that about her. She's like, you're not going to arrange a marriage for me at all. Thanks. I'm good. Not to mention, you know, her parents, her parents don't know that she already has a boyfriend because he's a Montague and Capulets and Montagues. That's the one thing that doesn't change in the story. They don't like each other. So of course she can't tell anybody that Romeo's her boyfriend and vice versa. And then she ends up meeting someone through her dad, that is a potential husband and Dario played by Sean Teal. And what's funny about this is how they kind of play off of one another. These two characters, they just had such a fun chemistry. So you didn't know if it would work out between the two of them, but I found myself more and more rooting for that as we saw the two of them more on the screen. Now, do they get along right away? Absolutely not. Do they get along at all ever? I, I don't know. You're going to have to watch it and find out for yourself. But I will say those two characters together were appointment viewing for me in this movie. Those were the two characters, Rosalind and Dario, that I wanted to see paired up together more often than not. Now, how the whole Romeo meets Juliet thing happens in this particular part of the story, I thought was very interesting. It, it is very much a a comedy of errors in a, in a way, in a man, in a manner of speaking. And then just by chance, Romeo happens to meet Juliet. Now I said the name Capulet. Maybe that's the only spoiler I'll give you is that, yeah, you know, that Juliet's a Capulet and Rosalind is. So you sort of see Rosalind try to get Juliet off the track of wanting to be with Romeo. You see that in the trailer. That's not a spoiler at all, but how that whole story plays out, I think, is is really, really fun. And watching those two play off of each other as well, Rosalind and Juliet, not that we see a ton of that in this movie, but seeing that back and forth, I think it's interesting. And, and how perfect Juliet is presented in this movie, I think, is, is really interesting, too. Plus, it's Isabel Merced who's playing Juliet, and she's the same girl that played Dora in the Door of the Explorer live-action movie, and she's unrecognizable. You wouldn't know that that was the same woman that's doing that and playing Juliet. You, you, I, at least I couldn't tell anyway. When I saw the name, I was like, huh, that name looks familiar, and that's exactly who it was. So this was actually very well cast. Now, does the humor land all the time? No. I think the cast, more the way that they bring out the humor, is sometimes better than what's written on the page itself. You also have a couple of very larger than life out of their time period characters like Paris was one who's kind of like Rosalind's best friend, but you also have nurse and nurse. I love so, so much. And, and it's basically because she's the one that sort of tells it like it is now. Is she kind of the mentor mini drivers character to, to Rosalind? I guess in a certain way, she's like a second mom to Rosalind too and but she also understands her too at the same time so she's the one that kind of understands where Rosalind's coming from and almost doesn't let her give up on herself in a certain way which is really really neat she she's very much tell it like it is but she's uh, a tough love motivator in a certain sense as well I also love how this movie sort of pokes fun 
at the traditional Shakespeare story and certain things that were, if you read it now, you go, really? Really? That's what they're, that's what she decided to, okay, if that's what she decided to do and that's what he decided to do and that's, okay, that's how it ends. They kind of poke fun at certain historical scenes in that original story, which I think is is really fun. The the characters and how the time period is presented, that's the trope that this movie does follow, if, it, if anything, is that these period piece movies, especially the comedies, will tend to hit on the same comedic beats. And this, this Rosalind certainly does that for sure. Now, d- d- is that a bad thing? No, not necessarily. It's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that you're going to see some familiar humor there. But I also love that they don't try and, you know, force bringing the accents into things or anything. They don't force so many other things about this, like the dialogue. They don't force the dialogue to be Shakespearean. As a matter of fact, they make fun of it at a certain point. They just make a what feels like a modern romantic comedy set in the time of Romeo and Juliet. And watch the credits, by the way. Watch the credits not necessarily there's not like end credit scenes or anything like that there's like a there's like long a long credit scene that you have to see it's really really funny at least that that's one of the funniest parts of the movie is that end credit scene so really really fun stuff there and this is one of those movies don't don't overthink it it's not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagina- imagination but it's fun and it's okay to have fun with a movie like this. Don't expect a, a, a Shakespearean masterclass in this thing. Don't expect it to get the story 100% right because it won't. Just, just, just prepare yourself for some fun acting from, from Caitlin Denver, who plays Rosalind, Isabel Merced, like I said, Sean Teal, who's Dario, Kyle Allen as Romeo, Spencer Stevenson as Paris, and so many more that just really, really bring this out to life. And yeah, Rosalind was fun. I enjoyed it. I think you should give it a shot if you're on the fence about watching it. That's not only going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Rosalind, that's going to actually do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, since we had a couple of long interviews, and it's not any huge news to talk about. Let's just call it right here. But make sure you're downloading the Realm app. That's where you can find all of the show's Hot House, Bruiser, City of Ghosts, and the Shadow Files of Morgan Knox that I talked about in the Noir Roundtable. Again, thanks to those amazing creators and creative minds for joining me to talk about that. Also, make sure you're following us online, and you can listen to us on the Realm Network app as well. But you can go to downandnerdypodcast.com, follow along on social media, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram, and at downandnerdypod on TikTok as well, at downandnerdy on Facebook. And yeah, just subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Really appreciate your support. And remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. 
You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.